Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 63rd episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. And as many of you know, workplace bullying and combating it is something I feel has to be done as it impacts or can impact so negatively on people's mental health. And of course, it's anti-bullying week from the 11th to the 15th of November. And more often than not, workplace bullying is something that's brushed under the carpet. And often we might ask ourselves, where's the tangible research in this area to really make changes? Which interventions work and what does zero tolerance really mean in the workplace? Last year, I was invited to speak at the Ben Cohen Foundation Stand Up to Bullying Workplace Conference, where there were academics talking about this very subject and research in this area. And quite frankly, it was really music to my ears. So to join me today to talk about this more is Chloe Goh. Chloe is a work psychologist and doctoral researcher based at Loughborough University. From the beginning, Chloe attained her BSc in psychology at Loughborough and stayed on to complete an MSc in work psychology during which she focused her thesis on exploring menopausal voice within the workplace and the implications this has for employee mental health and well-being. She was then offered the opportunity to complete a PhD exploring how to improve the effectiveness of workplace bullying interventions. Absolute gold dust. She's a self-confessed pro-academic. Chloe is highly motivated to translate research into feasible and practicable interventions that protect and promote the health and well-being of employees within organisations. In line with this, she also works as a consultant psychologist, advising and providing insights for organisations on workplace bullying and other forms of unethical workplace behaviour, workplace bullying interventions from design to preparation, implementation and their content, change management and in particular establishing readiness for change, workplace health psychology, health and well-being of employees at work, menopause in the workplace and the relevance of the employee voice within this, equality, diversity and unconscious bias within the work environment. So we are in for a real treat today, subjects that I just really cannot wait to dig into. So Chloe, a huge welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'd really love it if you could start by telling the listeners what a pracademic is. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'm aware it sounds a bit gimmicky. Um, but but for me, uh, a pracademic uh, and something certainly that I would like to be, oh, I guess I'd like to be more centred in, um, is, is somebody who wants to produce research that can be translated into feasible, practical, tangible solutions. Um, and in my case, it's for organisations, because I kind of want to see my work being put to good use, so to speak. And I really hate the notion of research that's overly complex and hard to understand with big words and whatever. So so for me, it's really just about um, making sure that my work is able to be understood and applied easily. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I think you're so right. There's so much research that isn't tangible or that Mm -hmm. people think, I don't know how this applies to me or that it's at such a level that, you know, people do need to have um, a PhD or they do need to have, you know, level seven plus education. Um, So I think it's great. And also, you know, this whole rhetoric around, oh, the liberal elite, what do they know? And I really like this term pracademic because I think it shows that it's around making everyone's lives better. Definitely, definitely. It's it's all about accessibility for me. You know, we research things because we care about them, but let's make sure that everyone can be on it and be passionate about the same thing. 
Um, I don't think we need to put it on a really high shelf that no one can reach. That, that's that's my priority really anyway, is just making sure that we can all kind of access it and use it and understand it. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know, I read out in your bio that you, um, you know, you started with menopause in the workplace. So that was one of your uh, big areas. And now, of course, you do a lot of your research now is about workplace bullying and intervention. So mm. how did you start you know, how did you move? And there is an overlap, of course, because we know that many people who are experiencing uh, menopause in the workplace will also be likely to, um, depending on their symptoms and depending on time off, et cetera, the things that they might need may experience workplace bullying as well. So they're not mutually exclusive. But um, how did you start doing research then into workplace bullying interventions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 you're quite right. So just to touch on that, you're, you're very you're very true in, in saying that um, a lot of people, um, depending on their symptoms for the menopause, um, do tend to see their performance um, deteriorate at work um, in various different ways. And obviously that can then make them more vulnerable um, to, to bullying circumstances. But with regards to actually how I came into research in workplace bullying interventions, I don't really have a wild story behind it. But um, as I said, um, I'm very interested and passionate in looking at ways to help organisations prevent and reduce instances that threaten employee health and wellbeing. Um, and, and halfway through my master's, I was approached by um, who is now my, my supervisor. Uh, and he asked if I wanted to help him with a big project he was working on with a huge international organization. Um, and the project was looking at creating interventions centered around promoting dignity and respect in the workplace. Um, and I found it super interesting and we made a load of progress on it. Uh, and just as kind of that was tying up and my master's was coming to an end, uh, I noticed there was a PhD advertised at Loughborough looking into this sort of thing, um, which was, it was about workplace bullying interventions. Mm-hmm. So I decided to apply and just try my luck really. Um, and I was super surprised when I got the call to say I got it. I'll be brutally honest, but um, yeah, I'm super grateful I did because it's been a really, really insightful journey since then. And I've really enjoyed it. So and, and, you know, I met, again, I mentioned it in the intro that we met at the Stand Up to, Ben Cohen Foundation Stand Up to Bullying Conference. And mm. I was really, really impressed by the work that was going on in Loughborough. I didn't know. And again, it's that whole thing about how, why is it that people that are tasked with, you know, bullying policy so often in HR. And again, I've got a lot to say about, I don't think that's the only place it should sit. And I don't know mm. what your thoughts are. Mm. But, um, you know, why isn't there more research on this area? Um, I, I think uh, it, it's tricky, but there's the research, I mean, I had this conversation with an academic a few months ago, actually. We, the research is kind of in a washing machine and it's just kind of churning out or revisiting the same stuff. We haven't really seen mm. anything kind of cutting edge come out for a long time. I think inherently one of the most difficult things is the lack of unified definition. That, that's a bit of a problem um, because... We, we can't quite agree on what it is exactly that we're trying to prevent. We know it's bullying and we know it's not good, but what one person says bullying, another person might say incivility, another mm. country or academics, another country might say mobbing. So we're all kind of like passing ships in the night as it, as it goes. Um, but one thing that kind of unites us, I guess, is uh, our want to kind of prevent and reduce this sort of behavior and look after people so we're united in that passion but it's just kind of getting everyone on the same page at the moment that seems to be um a a tricky a tricky situation 
And that's a brilliant point, because one of the things I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, what does the term bullying, how do you define it in your research? Mm -hmm. And the second part to that question really is, um, do you think, because it's interesting, there's a kind of working definition. So Mm -hmm. for internal policies around bullying and at the conference, this was a big point of discussion, wasn't it, around Mm -hmm. the legal term for bullying? So do you think there should be a legal definition for bullying? Would that help cases? Would that create more clarity in the UK? Um, so I think that's a great question. Um, bullying, I think, is so tricky because of its perceptual nature. Uh, and the fact that we don't have a unified definition does make it tricky. Uh, in my research, uh, and particularly what I use in my thesis, uh, is kind of an amalgamated definition um, that's been kind of developed and pushed and merged together over time from lots of different studies and practice. Uh, and that is, um, bullying is the systematic mistreatment of individuals where the target is subject to repeated, prolonged, negative social acts by one or more colleagues. Uh, And then to kind of reinforce that, we tend in uh, academia to use examples to help classify that behaviour. And so there's certain characteristics, such as like the behaviour has to be repeated and prolonged. Um, The target tends to um, have to be... um, feeling like they they are unable to escape or get out of the situation. It's kind of those sorts of things. But if I'm to break it down further and just simplify what it means to me personally, and if someone asks me, what is bullying? Um, I just kind of, um, I see it as a, as a form of, um, I angle it through a fairness lens Mm -hmm. and I see it as a form of an ethical behavior that falls outside of illegal workplace conduct, but it's inherently unfair. So, so for me, it's, it's behavior that seems unjust, it's unexpected, uh, and not something that you would reciprocate to the opposing party. Um, and, and that for me just helps remove the complexities and uncertainty of trying to pin something down and just keeps it simple. Um, I do think it's important to note, it doesn't take away from its complex nature at all, but, um, it's just rather than worrying whether the behavior you've experienced has ticked all these boxes and, you know, oh my God, is it, is it just me being sensitive? Did they mean to not invite me to the meal? It's going, okay, mm-hmm. let, let's take a step back a second and let's look at this. Was this fair? I, I don't think so. Would I do that to them? Well, no, I wouldn't. Okay. So I feel upset and, and rightly so. And using that that lens and that approach people kind of they feel less aggrieved and anxious about ensuring that it's within these really specific confines and instead just have their feelings validated so I think you're so right about feelings validated because I think often all people want to do is to be heard mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and not negated and not be told you know not gaslighted not be told are you sure they meant it or they're just a firm manager it's this this it's just that and this kind of uh, organizational defensiveness that happens yeah 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 and it's it's so true and I think sometimes it's just like okay let's step away from the complexities because it does tend to slip into this little gray area and let's just look at it for okay that upset me I don't I wouldn't do that to them I do feel it's unfair and actually it's okay to feel like the way I do because because of these reasons um and I think to go into the second part of the question so regarding whether there should be a legal definition um I think that's super tricky and it is such a hot topic of conversation um I do hope that if it is eventually um brought into a legal definition that it would take away the lackadaisical approach that tends to be taken with bullying cases in that it's usually just given like I just said a big grey label with a question mark on it 
it doesn't seem to enact much urgency or as much urgency in organisations as illegal behaviours, for example, such as harassment or um, victimisation. Uh, and I, I also hope it might make more people mindful of how they interact with each other, with each other at work. Um, and I also hope it might give those who are targeted more confidence to identify and come forward. But, I mean... Additionally, we've seen with other things such as, you know, sexual harassment, that that specific mm. definition has helped make a really positive difference in identifying and addressing such awful behaviour. Um, but I am very aware that when legalities are tied to things, it can remove a lot of compassion out of the process. Mm. So it's like, oh, OK, you say you were sexually assaulted. OK, well, sound the sirens, follow us down this really long, complicated process. Right. Can you prove it? Did you have any witnesses? Well, you know, they're saying they didn't do it. What do you have to say to that? Et cetera, et cetera. And, and all of that is perfectly understandable, I think, with regards to why it's needed for taking formal action. But what that then does is it makes it really difficult for people to want to engage in the process. And ultimately, it just puts the burden of proof on the victim, which, which makes it more traumatic for them. Now, I'm, I'm aware that this is the case with bullying accusations anyway, but I think ultimately it does make the burden heavier for the target. So I think... The complex nature of bullying um, doesn't help the case either because I think that would then mean you might have to cover every single potential behaviour that could be used mm -hmm. to bully, mm -hmm. which is tricky, you know, because mm. in some circumstances, you know, these can be really innocent mistakes, you know, missing someone off an email list or, I mean, I don't know, my, my eyesight, for example, is awful. I can't see people's faces in the distance. Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like not seeing someone in time to greet them as you walk into the office, you know, these are really innocent mistakes, but they could be deemed to be, you know, microaggressions or like um, people ostracising others. And, and obviously these would then have to form part of a wider case. But if you did list all of the above, um, would, you, would that then mean that you'd have every employee with a spreadsheet, you know, keeping a note of all their interactions with other people? I don't know. I know it sounds super far-fetched, but in terms of practicality, I'm really not so sure how it would play out. So I think I am a bit on the fence with it. Um, I, I completely mm. see the need for it uh, and I really hope it would make a difference. But I'm also very aware that the interventions we have out there at the moment aren't very effective. Mm. So I do wonder if once we've sorted out the efficiency of interventions, we, we may then be able to achieve a more organic result with regards to like mm. reducing and preventing the occurrence of bullying in the first place. I think that's it, Chloe, isn't it? It's about the proactive as opposed to the reactive measures. Because again, mm. I think, you know, at that conference, even though it was a year ago, that the audience was split, wasn't it, around, yes, we should have a legal definition. Oh, gosh. You know, and a lot of legal practitioners thought, well, we know what we have isn't ideal, but because we've got a lot of case law and we know that there's a power imbalance involved and we know there's a hostile and derogatory behaviour involved, that we have a broad enough framework, which means that people can be challenged for bullying. Mm -hmm. um, and again, people conflate the terms bullying, harassment and victimization and it's so interesting when I do training how people again I think it's not anyone's fault I don't think the terms are clear enough and I think they're used interchangeably in the press mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so of course we know that harassment has to be around a protected characteristic it could be a one-off event it could be a prolonged event bullying could be one-off but the likelihood is it's it's a prolonged thing because you have mm -hmm. to again the burden of proof show evidence that someone has marginalized you sidelined you done something yeah, I also yeah. think you know we know in workplaces as well if someone comes up to your desks and shouts in your face as deeply as unpleasant as it is yeah. it's quite clear-cut what do we see particularly in higher education 
the things you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So missing people off emails accidentally on purpose, the black member of staff in the team getting the most teaching load, you know, mm-hmm. all these things. Mm-hmm. So how do you really put your finger on it? So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know myself. And I was, I was talking about this with a, with a legal academic friend as well. And she said, Oh, you know, good luck to the people doing it. But she said, <laughs> I think, you know, I think she said, I can see cases for and against. And she just, you know, as you said, it just, it does make it quite tricky because we know, you know, particularly when we do bullying training, all the different types of bullying, you've got serial bullying, you've got gang bullying, you've got policy and procedures being used against people. So uh, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's the list punitive, is it punitive or, um, yeah, all these, yeah. all these things that, that are there. So, um, really fascinating to hear that from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of the research then on intervention, so Chloe, what are the things that work? And we started to talk a little bit about there, you mentioned proactive rather than reactive, which I'm totally with you. Mm-hmm. So what, what, um, and I know your research is still ongoing, so feel free to share anything you want to about that, but also what interventions are really useful and are working and that, you know, companies could adapt quite easily. Because I think the other thing is, this is not, a rocket science in many ways and it's not expensive to do what's expensive is when you get to the other end and you end up in a tribunal yeah yeah absolutely um you know there's such a clear business case um for this um and so i mean out there at the moment i think it's fair to say um i don't think this is too controversial that we don't really have anything out there that's massively effective we we just don't interesting um i think one thing that did kind of harbor promising results was um a crew intervention that I think took place back in, I think it was included in the systematic review in 2017. And I can't remember what it stands for, but I know it's civility, respect, and I don't want to say engagement, but it might be in the workplace, something like that. And it was all about trying to change attitudes. And it was a really, what was good about it, or what what I think are the key kind of factors to interventions is they need to be longitudinal. So you've got to have um, measure points that go deep over time. So you can't just say, we're going to do a training course and that's it. You've, you've, it's got to be something that is going to be looked at and revisited for a long period of time because this is an inherently a behaviour. Um, and if you are to change behaviour, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's it's a matter of process. It's a matter of changing behavioural norms and values and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's got to be longitudinal. Uh, another thing is it's got to be targeted at all levels. You know, you can't just target it, um, I don't know, uh, managers, even though that's a very valid um, level to start at. Um, but you know, you need to look higher up in the organization. It's got to make, you've got to make sure it trickles down. Um, so, so these are some of the things that, uh, are key to try and make interventions more effective. But, um, as you mentioned, this is something I'm studying. I am now very scarily in my final year of my PhD. Um, and what I'm arguing at the moment is it's not necessarily the interventions and approaches that uh, aren't effective. Um, what I'm arguing is it's the organizations and environments within which they're being implemented um and they're just nowhere near ready to address the issue and that's the main problem so when we look at workplace bullying interventions i liken them and i think you've heard me going about this before but i liken them to flowers so how well hear me out hear me out (laughs) (laughs) so it's a bit cliche but the way i kind of posit it is how well a flower grows is dependent upon uh, the environment within which it's placed you know so you can have a relatively rigorous promising intervention but if the organisation that's using it isn't ready, it's just not going to work. So mm-hmm. I think the problem isn't necessarily, although it can be with the interventions themselves, but it's actually the organisations running them. So it's more than just saying, yeah, yeah, you know, we are ready to do some training because we've had a bit of a dodgy staff server result. It's so much deeper than that. What you will find is a lot of organisations will 
have a dodgy result come through or they'll have a couple of tribunals and then they'll pay someone to come in and run a few training mm-hmm. sessions, mm-hmm. maybe a survey, and then expect that to be enough. But because bullying, like I said before, is such a complex and inherently complex behaviour, preparation for it has to be deeper. It's got to be so much deeper than searching for LinkedIn for someone to come and run a session. It just has to be. So I think I think organisations need to look at themselves first. You know, so things such as, you know, what cultural principles are we disseminating and how does that then contribute towards uh, the burgeoning of this behaviour? How is power allocated and enforced within our organisation? How rigid and fair are our procedures? Do our employees trust that our managers or leaders can competently handle, uh, competently handle their experiences? You know, it's things like this. Um, and I've actually developed a conceptual framework and process model um, that deciphers specific components that formulate readiness for workplace bullying interventions as mm-hmm. part of my PhD. But because it's not finalised or published, I don't want to give too much of it away, but it is basically stuff like that. And, and what we're just trying to say is we're trying to encourage organisations to assess themselves through uh, themselves, more importantly, not employees, but themselves through different lenses to try and establish whether they're actually really ready to take on a bullying intervention or not, because it is so much more than just running a training session, putting up some posters, um, you know, telling someone off. It's, it's deeper than that. So, and, and the only reason I'm laughing is because when you said it's not about finding someone on LinkedIn and getting them in to do a, a, a anti-bullying training, which has happened to me several times. But you're right. I mean, you're right. And I and I don't do a huge amount of anti-bullying training anymore. But, yeah. um, you know, when I first started three years ago, full time in the business, I, that was a lot of the things that, that got mm-hmm. me on my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was mandatory training for everyone. And I know some people would turn up three, four times because that not been marked on the system properly but um yeah I, I think I really like your approach about readiness but also that it's one of those things where again people feel uncomfortable to talk about along with sexual violence mm-hmm. domestic violence racism mm-hmm. uh, anti-disability behaviors um you know what is this about this discomfort around assessing the readiness to tackle bullying I feel there's a quite a British thing in the UK about oh oh yes we put under the carpet mm-hmm. um and why aren't people saying yeah we're not good at this actually we we do have a bullying culture. Everything comes from the CEO and they're autocratic and they like things done this way. Or the CEO is brilliant, but actually, you know, our chief information officer, she's very, um, you know, challenging and she likes things done in a particular way. And this is having an impact. Why are we not ready as a country, given that we've got so much information about behaviours, emotional mm-hmm. intelligence? What's going on, Chloe? <laughs> Good question. I think if I knew the answer to that, I'd... Uh... I'd be very rich. I was um, going to say you'd be very rich. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, I think, I think, I think. First and foremost, when when we look at um, how how uh, how we perceive uh, behaviours and how we perceive situations and the stigma attached to things, uh, we kind of yes, we have to look at our own socialisation, but we also have to look upon which the environment with within which we've been placed. So let's take a look at let's step right up to the top. Let's look at society. Let's look at societal values around bullying. Um, you know. There's, there's a neg- negative connotations attached to it. You know, workplace bullying is very, very different to well, to an extent to, to school bullying in that it's, for want of a better word, it's more sophisticated, it's more subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, playground bullying, someone's punched me, he's called me this, she's called me that. You know, it, it, that's, that tends to be how it works. Whereas in the workplace, it's very different, it's very subtle. Um, people know the ins and outs of how to get away with it. 
And so that's why it's often, um, you know, people people's claims go, um, they get swept under the carpet. But I also think if we look at the reason why, one of the key reasons why organisations are so apprehensive to address it is because they lack the confidence because they're not too sure what it is. I think they're scared that it will open a can of worms and that kind of like with the Me Too movement, it was like, then everyone might come forward. But actually what you've got there is you've got to kind of flip it and look at the positives because if everyone's coming forward, they're giving you so much to work with and it's telling you loads about your organisation. If you hide these sorts of behaviours, unethical behaviours, let's just categorise them all, um, what you're creating is these horrible pockets that just get deeper and deeper and deeper. And actually, it, it's it's a really important business case because you're losing more money in terms of loss of productivity, short and long-term sick leave, um, turnover, all these sorts of things. So for, for me, it's about trying to give organisations the courage and also the accountability, you know, you need to be held accountable for the well-being and the behaviours that your staff um, are, are um, exhibiting to an extent. Because, you know, when they're within the confines of your organisation, they, they're representing you. And I think that, that needs to kind of come across. But um, I think one of the key things is money. Um, that, that's mm-hmm. often a, a massive factor behind the motivation of organisations to address this thoroughly. Um, because, you know... If uh, if they have a damaged reputation, um, then they'll, they'll lose money ultimately because they lose investment and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think it's easier to brush things under the carpet and pretend like they don't exist and do deal with the odd payoff of somebody in a tribunal than, um, you know, really go, yeah, do you know what? We've got an issue. Let's look at it. Help us out. I'm going to be really open and honest about this and I want to tackle it. So sometimes easier to just sweep under the carpet. But But you're right, you know, people don't, don't want to um, be open and talk about it. Uh, and they're, they're scared to come forward. You know, there's a lack of psychosocial safety there. And I do, I also think that that's probably um, attributed to the fact that we're still not quite sure what it is. And because it is largely perceptual, what one person says, you know, this is really affecting me, I'm really struggling. Another person's going, oh my God, why? It's fine, they're only joking. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm. So there's that huge discrepancy in perception as well, which makes it, you know, it, it doesn't do anybody any favours in terms of coming up and speaking about this. Um, yeah, that was a bit of a roller coaster answer, but I hope that. No, that's <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. A really holistic view, and and thinking yeah. about wellbeing. Then um, we know that mental ill health um, can come about, or mental well, ill health can be exacerbated or develop as a result of bullying. You know, some mm-hmm. people have experienced workplace bullying that's been so horrific they've developed post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Um, so, how has your re- what has your research shown then in terms of short term, medium, and long term negative impacts to mental health, mm-hmm. um, um, and also so what can workplaces do about that in terms of supporting mental ill health if it develops or is exacerbated by bullying behaviours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so I, I think that's a good question and it's a very important question. Um, I don't research specifically the impact it has on mental health and wellbeing per se, but it's obviously a super prevalent reason that forms part of a larger business case for organisations to effectively implement interventions to address it. So we know, and I mean, there's so much literature out there on this, but we know from literature that workplace bullying can significantly damage health, both short and long term. So it's been linked to psychological distress, um, things such as anxiety, depression, burnout, decreased self-esteem, decreased self-worth, low self-efficacy. It can cause suicidal ideation. Um, It can also affect people's sleep quality, stress levels. 
which then triggers the additional physiological implications too. You know, people are having strokes, having heart attacks, um, all sorts of awful, awful things just caused by the the additional stress that bullying causes them on top of their, you know, on top of your job role too. Um, Performance-wise, uh, it can affect your uh, cognitive functionality, meaning that your task performance is decreased. Um, you're more likely to feel dis- dissatisfied, disengaged, and ultimately unhappy and unsafe in your job. So that combined with, like as you said, the trauma of it all, um, especially for not just for the targets who are arguably um, the most impacted, but those close to them, so family and friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, also the bystanders, you know, a lot of people... Some, in some circumstances, people are too afraid to stick up and get involved and then they're living with the guilt. Um, other times, you know, they maybe try to, but you can't quite beat the system and so you still live with the guilt. So, you know, there's there's a lot of impact that it can have on bystanders as well. But mm. it, it can really ruin people's lives and evoke trauma years after it's happened, which should be a huge concern for all organisations. Given we will all spend the majority of our lives at work, um, there's a really a huge need for organisations to be open and proactive towards uh, addressing it. And I think in ways in which they can kind of um, encourage or you know help protect and support people who are dealing with the health implications of it, um, I think the first thing and what's, what's really key for me, and I don't want to, I always switch back into my menopause research, but what I looked at with that was um, the notion of menopausal voice. Uh, and so that was like the ability an opportunity for menopausal employees to discuss uh, their menopausal experience with their employer and also their colleagues. So how safe was it to be talking about this? And what impact did that lack of or ability to um, have on their well-being? And voice is incredibly powerful. Um, if you can talk about things and externalise them and gain feedback, it helps you to process things better. And like we discussed earlier, it helps make your feelings validated. So it's reassuring. You're not sitting there going mad and so I think we do need to work on creating a, a better voice climate for people to come forward and discuss um, unethical behavior and their experiences at work and you know have that validated you know so and so did leave me off that email do you think they did it on purpose you know and just being able and without being able to articulate and discuss those things without being shot down you know don't be ridiculous they didn't mean it or like you said before you know they oh you know they're just a really stern manager they want you to do well you know they're not they're not they're not bullying you. They're just being strict. And it's about trying to uh, encourage that notion of respect. And, and for me, again, it's really important encouraging that notion of like looking at it through that fairness lens. Okay. Whether or not we agree with what they're saying, let's be fair to them. Let's hear them out. Let them talk about it. Now t- talking obviously isn't going to solve everything, but um, in terms of a support mechanism, if you create those active channels for voice horizontally for kind of your um, solidarity or your horizontal support with your colleagues, but then if you have that openness um, for your vertical voice, so speaking to managers and stuff, that can then trigger actions um, and adjustments and things that can then be put in place. And it ultimately shows them that, you know, we are going to take this seriously. But then if you are going to create those channels, you need to then make sure that you've got sufficient interventions that are, that can be triggered and put in place to support them. So it's not as simple as just letting people talk about it. You know, there's a whole other thing that's got to be set up and ready um, as, as I like to use, ready to go um, if people are going to use that channel, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a really complicated issue, um, but it's not something that can't be done. I think that's the important thing. 
Yeah, it's about the readiness and the willingness again, isn't it? And, <laughs> and you're so right. The, the point you said about family and friends though, and bystanders, because when I went through my bully, well, I've been through several bully, you know, bullying has been one of the themes throughout my life, actually. But um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so but very subtle. She was a very manipulative woman. Mm. I mean, the great news is she did eventually get pushed out by the vice chancellor. So mm-hmm. I got my, she got her just desserts, but it took five, five years after I'd left. Yeah. Um, but I mean, very, very subtle. If I tried to go anywhere and because she'd been in the institution for a really long time, uh, nothing would have nothing would have happened and mm-hmm. I didn't ha- I had things that made me feel awful and I and I really felt that they were racially motivated but I had no proof mm-hmm. um, and that thing and even now I I'm still bitter about it because yeah. you know there was loads of gaslighting she was very nice to everyone in the team she had an all-female team so it was like oh look at her she's so feminist and she yeah. wasn't you know yeah. it was all so yeah you're absolutely right and and so just when I remember just waking up in the morning and almost in crying and saying I don't want to go to work the impact that it has on the others around you is so significant so I think you're absolutely right to mention that mm-hmm. um and so you know this is very emotive work as there's a lot of emotional load a lot of mental load actually in this research yeah. so Chloe I'd like to ask you how you look after your mental health <laughs> and what your top three tips are that's a good, good, good question um so I think what, one thing that's quite funny is uh despite my line of work I think I would I would happily acknowledge that I'm still very much learning to get this right well, for me, there's kind of three key things that help me. So, so firstly, and I've just said it, and I think you've kind of got to live and breathe your research to an extent. Otherwise, um, you come across as a bit of a phony. But speaking to people about how I feel um, on a regular basis is something that I do very often. Uh, it's usually my mum, bless her. She, uh, she's my soundboard for everything. Uh, and we do speak every single day. Um, but I am fairly transparent with everyone I'm close to in my life, uh, such as my partner and my friends. And doing this helps me to externalize um what's going on in my head and also better rationalize my thoughts uh, and it just helps me to kind of unpick them and uh deal with them in an objective way rather than uh, and helps to kind of re- remove the emotion that you might be experiencing so that's one way just speaking about how i'm feeling getting some external feedback and validation or sometimes you know mum will be like you've been ridiculous like fix up a little bit which is what, what you need. You do need that sometimes. And you're like, yeah, do you know what? You are right. So that one thing is key. Always speaking to people and being open about it, um, about how I'm feeling and what's going on. Um, number two for me, a um, bit cliche, but it, it's still valid. Exercise is super important to me. Um, keeping fit is a priority of mine. But regardless of that, I really notice how much my mood is affected when I don't exercise. So, you know, it's not necessarily about going and Olympic lifting twice my body weight. It's even just getting out, going for a walk. Um, If I'm at home, it's taking my dog out. It's just getting out in the fresh air and just being away from your desk for a little bit. Um, It's, I find it really cathartic. Uh, And I think if you can keep yourself physically uh, stronger, you do feel a little bit better as well mentally. Um, And then I think finally, um, and this is one thing that I've learned since starting my PhD, and it's taken me a while to kind of begin to grasp it, but I think I'm starting to get there. But one thing that's key for me is, just respecting my capacity, which sounds really simple, but some days I have absolutely no brain power whatsoever, which is really like, it's just not ideal if you're doing a PhD because you need to have your brain on point every day. But I've learned that rather than sitting at a desk stressing that nothing's coming out or I can't focus or I can't write something or I'm reading it and it's going, just not, I'm not retaining it. Um, I've learned to just kind of walk away from it, respect that my brain for whatever reason doesn't fancy it. Uh, and I just do something else for a bit. And actually it's learning that it's okay to do that. 
Um, Because I I think we live in an age where it's hard to escape the superhumans we see on social media who, you know, they make millions and they're also elite athletes, but, you know, they could also win Bake Off as well as Mastermind if they tried sort of thing. Um, And I'm not taking anything away from these people because I think that great, I think, you know, they're super talented and fair play to them. But what I do think is that then creates an overwhelming pressure to complete a million things a day and, you know, to constantly be successful. And actually what I found most helpful is just respecting how you're feeling and acting accordingly. And I know it sounds really easy to say out loud, but I think sometimes we just need to try and free ourselves from the guilt a little bit and realize that, you know, productivity and progress isn't always about excelling and getting constant results it's a gradual process isn't it so it's patience and respect for yourself I guess lovely I really like that point about almost self-boundaries and realizing that yeah you can't be superhuman and it's so true I'm in fact I I was reviewing something the other day that I'd written so I do these one-page plans and I'd put in it um Layla to realize she's not superwoman. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a work in progress here too, Chloe. Yeah. Um, so we've had, this has been such a fascinating discussion. And if people want to know more about your work um, and maybe, you know, read your previous research, um, keep their eyes out for your research that's going to be out when, when you complete your PhD and the other things that you've done, how should mm-hmm. they get in touch with you or find out more about your work, Chloe? Um, so I think uh, they probably need to be a bit patient because I don't know how long it's going to be before it's out, but I'm working on it. Um, but uh, email is usually best. So um, I think I've sent you over my details for that, but I also have Twitter. Um, so I've got a Twitter that's aligned with my PhD and that's at uh, Chloe Go. So the E um, is a three and the I was actually a zero. I went back to like 2000s text speak because there was no username <laughs> available. Um, and then also I'm on LinkedIn. So um, just under Chloe Goff. Uh, so you should see me. I should... I should appear if you type me in, but um, yeah, I'm pretty active on all three of those and I'm always more than happy to discuss or uh, talk to people about my research and how I can help and that sort of thing. So I think what's what's really important for me is that we all, we're all in this together and uh, trying to tackle and uh, be proactive towards reducing this sort of behaviour because, you know, it is something that can really significantly impact people's lives and why would we not want to stop it? You know what I mean? Yeah, completely. Like you said, there's a moral case, but there's absolutely a business case too. If people mm-hmm. think this is soft mm-hmm. and fluffy. So thank you so much, Chloe. And on all those contact details are in the show notes. If you want to check out, check them out or get in touch with Chloe. And of course, she'll be tagged into the posts on social media. So you can also find her there. Um, I just want to say a huge thank you for sharing your knowledge and your time because I also know you're super busy with other things. So we're so grateful that you could join us today. No problem at all. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's, it's lovely to talk about it. Um, and uh, thank you for actually listening to me because half the time I think you get so caught up in your PhD, you just feel like you're talking about it all the time. So it's nice that you're actually interested. Thank you. No, absolutely. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening. So do, you know, do remember this. This is, I think Chloe shared some real gems with us um, and do check out her work and do get in contact with her tweeter, share her work because it's so vital. And we'll see you on the next episode where we're going to be talking to Dr. Jermaine Ravalia, talking more about, again, research-based initiatives on wellbeing in the workplace. So until the next episode, take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.